Now, yesterday I kind of got bogged down and didn't get on through Hosea as far as I wanted to. We'll see how today goes. But uh, we were in chapter 6, <clears throat> and as a brief review, uh, God says he's going to punish Ephraim and that we'll seek him early when all that trouble comes. And then chapter 6 opens with that very return where the attitude is expressed, come, let us return to God, and he'll heal us. He'll bind us up and take care of our wounds and our tears and everything that's happened to us. Now, bear in mind, this is speaking first to the church, secondly to the physical nation, which, but the physical nation will not return until the beginning of the millennium after the tribulation is over. But the church and the remnant of it is supposed to return between now and the time Christ returns. And that very quickly he'll revive us. It won't take long, very short period of time, two to three days. And then we have to follow on to know God, to truly get to know him. How do you get to know someone? You spend time with them. That's how you get to know them. Uh, somebody that you just meet, you know, you don't get to know them. You might know their name. You might know what they look like. But if you want to really get to know somebody, you have to spend time with them, learn about them. And we need to spend time with God. And that's somewhere right in there really set me off, and we spent a long time there. Anyway, he says he'll come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain to the earth. If you want to get some timing on that, uh, there, I think it's in Joel where it talks that he'll send the former and the latter rain in the first month. So perhaps, though this does not give the timing, Joel does. But he'll give us the former and the latter. In other words, it's going to rain showers of blessings, as Isaiah says, when it turns around. Then he said, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? Because you, you act like you want to do what's right, but it just disappears immediately in the morning when the sun comes up. You're just like dew. It, it just goes away very quickly. So he shakes his head and says, what am I going to do with you? And we talked the other day about not wanting to be in the category of those where God says, I don't know what to do with that one. I keep watching, I keep waiting, I keep pondering to see which way they're going to go, and they can't seem to get their mind made up and get committed to a course and do something about it. So he ponders our hearts. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets, had the prophets chew them up. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. We read the words in the Bible. And he says, I've had the prophets spout my words out and chew them to pieces with them. Isn't that the way it feels sometimes? <laughs> that uh, we get into these prophecies and, man, they chew on us. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are as the light that goes forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Christ repeated that in Matthew 9, verse 13. Sacrifice has never been God's desire or wish. He instituted animal sacrifices to teach obedience. But sin was never forgiven by the blood of bulls and goats. Our sins are more important, our lives are far more important, than a bull or a goat. We're way above them. They're animals. We're people in the image of God. So it took someone bigger than us, who was more important than us, 
to be sacrificed for the sacrifice to mean anything. His sacrifice had to be bigger than our sins. And indeed it was. So he didn't desire sacrifice, he wanted mercy. But how do you give mercy to people who sin all day long and are not willing to follow his ways? It's really hard to extend mercy when people live the way that the nation and the church has been living. Verse 7, But they like men have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Did I say we're in Hosea 6? I think I did. Uh, Down in verse 7 now, for those who are out uh, on the phone line. Oh, I know. I I had somebody call me yesterday from out there, and they wanted to know where that verse is that says, Buy the truth and sell not. And it's in Proverbs. I'll just go ahead and say it right here. Proverbs 23, I believe it was. I looked it up. Yeah, verse, chapter 23, verse 23. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Uh, be willing to put out time, energy, money for the truth and don't for any reason sell it or get rid of it. So that saves a phone call and everybody knows where that is now. Uh, now back to Hosea 6, verse 7. But they like men have transgressed the covenant, there have they dealt treacherously against me. This nation has not by any means kept the covenant that Israel made with God, even to date. They're still under the terms of the old covenant. God has not given them the new covenant yet. And they are still bound by the old covenant or at least by the conditions and the penalties of it. So God can exact punishment for disobedience to that covenant that they said they would keep and didn't. Verse 8, Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. It became, Gilead was a city in Ephraim that became a center for idolatry. So he singles it out here is a city that is filthy. You could say that of probably most any town or city in America today. Some seem to be worse than others in terms of just the outright sin, but uh, God singled out Gilead as a center of idolatry. And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness or... uh, How do the priests murder? Well, we're spiritually dying, aren't we? Because they put us on a starvation diet, spiritually speaking, or because they're leading us away from really keeping God's ways and telling us that everything's okay. It'll be okay, honey, you just stay here and pray and pay, and your ticket is punched to safety and into the kingdom of God. And it's such a simplistic, wrong approach. So wrong. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. He singles out Ephraim first because we should be the leader. And indeed, the church was established in Ephraim. And it is the church of the firstborn. 
And the American church should have been the leaders for the rest of the churches, congregations around the world. But we fell into materialism and Laodiceanism and ho-hum, lackadaisical attitudes, thinking we're in the temple, we're in the temple, we're in the temple, everything's okay. But it wasn't okay. And God hates half-heartedness. He hates lukewarmness. He would rather we be either hot, so he has no trouble making a decision, or cold, so that he has no trouble making a decision. This lukewarmness is a frustration to him. Because he has to think, well, I don't know, I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that one. Let's watch him some more. Let's don't make a final decision. And then he finally just said, <coughs> he blew us out his mouth. He said, either get hot or cold. You know, and a lot got cold. A lot just departed. But not very many got hot. And most just moved over a pew, went right back to sleep, and are still lukewarm. Now, where are we going to fit in there? I hope God has no trouble deciding that there are some that are on fire for me, on fire for my way, and will do what I say, and live my way of life, and they will depart from this world and the corruption in it. He says, ah, those are the easy ones. Don't you want God's decision on you to be easy? That direction? Not easy the other direction? Or difficult? We pray for God's blessing, for his forgiveness. It's brought out in the sermonette. We'll, we'll, we'll go to God and ask him to forgive us, but maybe there's somebody we resent or have an attitude about, and... We won't go to them and solve it. We won't forgive them. We let that root of bitterness reside in us. We won't get it out and get rid of it. But God says he won't even hear our prayers if we're that way. You know, if, if God isn't hearing our prayers, there is a reason. God says that his saints, he loves, and their prayers are like a fragrance coming up to him. He loves to hear the prayers of his righteous people. He loves to have us talk to him if we're in that category. But he says, if you don't forgive, I will not forgive you. So when you pray for forgiveness and you have a bitterness against a brother somewhere, God has told us ahead of time, don't even leave your gift before the altar. Don't even pray to me for forgiveness unless you forgive someone else. So each and every one of us here needs to examine his heart, his mind, very closely and see if there is not some grudge, some bitterness, some hatred. Maybe we could use several synonyms here. Some attitude about someone, do not even expect God to favor you, to bless you, to forgive you, unless you go and resolve that problem. He says that. If God does not accept our prayers, there's a reason for it. Now, he said he turned his face from the church here at the end time. 
because he couldn't stand our sins. So he is not having his face shining on the church and just so eager to answer our prayers because of our sins. They've separated between us and God. There is always cause and effect. If we are not here having our prayers answered regularly and completely, there's a reason. There's a reason for the whole church. And there's a reason for this group. And there's a reason for us individually. If our prayers don't get answered, we need to look at ourselves and find out why. There is no fault in God. There's no problem with Him. You know, with human beings, you can always say there's two sides to that coin. Somebody will say, well, so-and-so, such-and-such, and such-and-such, and... There's this problem in that marriage or that relationship or whatever it might be, and so-and-so's the problem. With human beings, you can always figure there's a problem on both sides. It just is that way. It might be 90-10 or 10-90, it may be 50-50, but there are problems on both sides. Now, in our relationship with God, though, it's 100 to 0 if there's a problem in the relationship, it's 100% us and zero God. He does not have relationship problems that are caused by him. The relationship problems are our fault. Maybe we get a few prayers answered here and there. Maybe our relationship is somewhat there with God. But he makes some pretty bold statements there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 about our relationship with him. So, I'm not here to discourage us or frustrate us. I'm here to educate us that if we have problems in our relationship with God, we need to explore why and find a solution. Fix it. Are there sins? Is there lack of forgiveness? Are there problems between us as people down here? Because he makes it very clear that the way we treat each other is the same relationship we have with him. If we treat each other with disrespect, with disdain, with disfavor, with grudging, unforgiving attitudes or bitternesses, then he says that is equal to our relationship with him. Because those things that are relationship problems between us as humans carry over. And he considers it his business. He considers it part of his relationship. Because if we have those attitudes toward each other, it cannot help but affect our relationship with him. There is a connection there. We are to live together with the Father and the Son in peace completely forever. And if we got into his kingdom and began squabbling among ourselves like we tend to do here on the earth, then it would wreck the peace of the kingdom. So we are directly tied together in our human relationships and our relationship to God. There's no separating it.
What we are with people is what we are with God. So therefore, our relationship cannot help but be damaged right now, can it? Because it's compromised every time we compromise our relationship with each other. That's why we need to be close. We need to be family. We need to resolve our problems, not just let them rock on month after month and year after year. We have to fix it. And then God says, Ah, my church, my firstborn, is better now. The body is feeling better. The toe quit hurting. The finger quit hurting. The ear quit hurting. So the whole body is in better health. You know, when there's a problem in the congregation, it doesn't just affect the two people who are having the relationship problem. It affects the rest of us. Because they'll tell what their side of the story. It'll be seen. It'll be heard. You know, you're going to confide in somebody. If you're hurting, you're going to tell somebody in most cases. Maybe not always, but in most cases, people do air their dirty laundry to someone else, someone they feel close to. And usually, in most cases, in my experience, they've, they've shared that with somebody who has attitudes like they do. You know, the ones we are closest to, it seems, are the ones that are most like us. That can be a good thing, but it can also be a very, very bad thing, because birds of a feather do tend to flock together. So you will find people who have the same strengths you do, and you will relate to them, but we also tend to find, and maybe more so, those who have the same weaknesses. If you want to justify some wrong attitude or wrongdoing or rebellion or whatever it is, you'll find somebody that you think might have the same attitude or a similar one, and you can convince them that your rebellious attitude is correct or your negative attitude is correct. You'll find those you can influence. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of human tendencies. Because if you're not aware of something, you will tend to make the mistake. So be aware of what we as human beings usually do. And be careful. What did Korah do? What did Miriam? What did Aaron do? They kind of had bad attitudes. So they got together and talked about it, and they eventually formed a plan and got in serious trouble over it. Just one example. Ananias and Sapphira were both greedy. So they got together, as husband and wife will do, and they began to think alike on the matter, as husband and wives tend to do. And they both died. Sometimes you wives need to have the strength to stand up against your husbands. Mr. Armstrong said over and over, he used to marvel, that he had never seen a woman who would stand up and follow God no matter what her husband did. It mystified him that the women did not have the spiritual strength to stand up against her husband when he was wrong. 
You gals have a right to do that. Yes, you're to be in submission to your husband and normal things. But when it comes to your relationship with God, that always comes first. Anytime I see a woman making excuses and saying, well, my husband says I need to do this and my husband says that, now what does your husband in heaven say? He is your most important husband. Not that sweating, stinking fellow you lay beside every night. Yeah, he's your husband too. But he's not nearly as important as your husband in heaven. And you need to get that through your heads. Your eternal salvation and your marriage to Christ depends on that. Husband get better leave the church, wife nearly always goes with him. And I've said it before, and I, I think that this observation has been correct, that in the years when the church was growing rapidly, you got letters that came through Pasadena and out to the local ministry, it would nearly always be the wife that wrote in first. Why? Were they just naturally more spiritual? No. I think God began to call the women first, in most cases, high percentage, I don't know what percentage, so that they had to stand up against their husband and obey God against their husband's wishes. Because there was a test in that spiritually for them. And then later on, when God began to work with the husband, he had to swallow his macho, masculine, egocentric pride and follow his wife into the church. He had to humble himself and say, Honey, you were right. Hard for a lot of men to do. How did God call Herbert Armstrong? By calling his wife first, and, may, and then he had to study it out and eat crow and accept that what his wife had said was true. He had to humble himself. So God knows what he's doing. Now, each case is different. In some cases, the man was called first. But the preponderance was the other direction, the majority. But we must obey God rather than man. And that means any man, including your physical husband. So girls, remember, you have a spiritual responsibility before God. And just because your husband says this is the way it is doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it is. You have a mind also. You have a Bible also. And God holds you responsible for reading and studying your Bible and your relationship with him. Not just accept whatever your husband says, because he could be wrong, you know. Men are sometimes wrong. It's rare, I know, but it can happen. I don't care what you've been told. You girls do have minds. I came over here last night. The girls were ahead of the boys when I got here in that game. And it was a mind game. It was about putting stuff together. We rallied. We won. But, but they did have minds. You know, I, I could see that. I never played the game. I was sitting there watching, trying to figure out how, what it was all about. 
and I saw that the women could think. Wow. You got mind, use them. And when you stand before the judgment, or when it's time for you to either rise off the ground or don't, it won't do you a bit of good to say, but my husband said, <coughs> no, you answer to God yourself. So women, rise up in the right way, in the resurrection. <laughs> I don't mean rise up and take over, but God holds you responsible. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. If a husband impedes your spiritual progress, he's unconverted. You have every right to divorce so that you can obey God. Now, God does not allow for divorce very much. It is a very narrow... Opportunity is the wrong word. It's a very narrow... What's the word I'm looking for? Chance that divorce can be properly and righteously accomplished. He did it with Israel because of her whoring around with other peoples, other nations, other societies and cultures. And Christ makes allowance for that in Matthew 19 and Romans 6. And that's about all, except that Paul made the distinction that if God calls the woman and not the man and he stands in the way of her spiritual progress and might cost her the kingdom of God, she has every right to divorce, and the Bible says she is not bound in those circumstances. In other words, she is free to remarry only in the church. Don't jump into the same fire you just got out of by marrying another unconverted because God did not call them, he takes responsibility for that. But you cannot use an unconverted mate, male or female, as an excuse for not growing and overcoming and doing what you should do spiritually. God will hold you responsible. So put God first, not your physical husband or wife. There is a time when a woman should stand up against her husband, and that is when he would compromise her spiritual standing with God. Then you have absolutely every right, and you have a right to make the decision there, because it's your eternal life, not his. Let's understand. Sure, in day-to-day -day activities and physical things, God did put the husband there as a leader. He didn't put him there as the final decision maker. But even then, we men should not be so autocratic and self-serving that we won't listen. And sometimes they come up with a better answer than we had. My wife often comes up with a good answer to things. I treasure her advice, even though sometimes I don't like it. But I try to admit when she's right. But if I think she's wrong, then I have to do what I think is right. And I do. But I'd better listen. She's put there to help me, to give me guidance, counsel, advice, prepare my sermons. No. No. 
Once in a great while, she'll make a suggestion. You know, maybe it'd be good to cover such and such. Because she sees it as a problem in herself or in me or in you. So she'll make a suggestion once in a while, but she doesn't write my sermons and neither do I. God wrote them here. So I don't, I read the Bible and I pray about it and ask God to use me as his mouthpiece and speak his words, not mine. And then we open the Bible and we get started. Once in a while I make a few notes or jot some scriptures down because I want to go there and my mind is not always uh, working properly and I'll forget to go somewhere. But we all need to depend on God, male and female. That's just the way it is. You men need to realize your wives do have brains. And they are somewhat functioning. You know, hey gals, I'll kind of ease them into it. You know, kind of ease them into it. Male ego knows almost no bounds sometimes. And uh, we need to treat our wives gently and lovingly and kindly and listen to them. And I sometimes don't listen to my wife enough and I hear about it. <laughs> you know, listen to me. Of course, you girls have never said that to your husbands. I know that. Anyway, I digress. Verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. So God points out Ephraim, this country, and this church, as the leaders... And he says the whole country is defiled because of the poor leadership. Also, O Judah, he has set an harvest for you when I return the captivity of my people. So he singles out Ephraim and Judah. Judah was supposed to be the kingly line. They were supposed to be examples to the other tribe. And Ephraim, as the firstborn son, was supposed to be the leader of Israel. But look where we have led Israel. Chapter 7 of Hosea, when I would have healed Israel, God said to himself, maybe I can heal them, maybe I can fix them. And he was leading that direction. Then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood, and the thief comes in, and the troop of robbers spoils without. So within and without the country, we're being raped and pillaged and robbed. Fever is rampant. It's rampant in Wall Street. It's rampant in Washington. It's rampant in our cities and all through our country. Lying and stealing and cheating is just common today. So common. So God was trying to have compassion, and he says, and then I saw the sin of Ephraim, and I just, ah, I can't heal them now. I can't fix this. It's going to take a bigger solution than just forgiving and healing. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. We don't take it deeply inside that God hates sin. But we live in a culture that is so used to sin. It is so everywhere that 
Little white lies, big black lies can roll off our tongues just like that. It's everywhere around us. And don't think that we have not been affected by it to one degree or another. Lying is part of our culture. Stealing in its many forms, blue collar, white collar, government, anything, is so common that it's just accepted. It's part of life. And I guess we somehow think that God has accepted our way of life. Because we try to tell ourselves we're a Christian nation while all this sin is going on, and we don't show the definition of Christian as a nation by any stretch of the imagination. They don't think about it in their heart and consider and remember all their wickedness. But God does. Now their own doings have beset them about there before my face. You know, I used to read all of those prophecies in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and various places in the Bible when I was just a little guy. And I would think, well, God is going to cause the famine. God is going to cause the drought. God is going to cause the crops to fail. You know, now I look around, and it isn't really God doing that. It says their own doings have beset them about. It is our chemical fertilizers. It is our polluting approach that is causing a lot of our farm ground to be worthless today. We have done this to ourselves. God isn't having to do a lot of it. Now, some of it he will send, perhaps, in terms of weather. I don't know how much they may even be manipulating the weather now. There are people who think so. I haven't seen proof, so I'm not going to make an accusation, but who knows what's going on that we are not even aware of. We're bringing these things upon ourselves. Why are we beginning to die as a nation of all these epidemics of diseases? Diabetes, heart trouble, cancer, were almost unheard of a hundred years ago. Now they're everywhere. Some people got two or three of those diseases. It's becoming epidemic. Why? Because of all the chemicals and garbage and sugar and refined things we've been eating. We are destroying ourselves. And the things that are destroying us, we have trouble turning loose of. They are so ingrained in our culture and in our minds and hearts and appetites and desires. So hard. Their own doings have beset them. They are before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the princes with their lies. We got liars, cheaters, thieves at the head of our government. And that's the way they like it. And they like for us to be that way. Because they're what? They're the top thieves. They're the top liars. They're the worst of the bunch. And they can justify what they do by looking at us and saying, they lie too. They cheat too. They steal too. So why shouldn't we steal bigger and lie bigger to them? They find justification in it. They're all adulterers, as in the oven heated by the baker who ceases from raising after he has kneaded the dough until it be leavened. 
In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He stretched out his hand with scorners. So we're like bread rising, and he just leaves it alone. We're filled with sin. The baker quits kneading it and just leaves it be. And so no one corrects us, no one guides us. We're just left on our own and drunk on our materiality and other things. For they have made ready their heart like an oven, while they lie in wait. Just like you warm up an oven to put bread in it, they warm up their hearts to sin. How do you warm up your heart to sin? Well, you watch it on the TV, you listen to it on the radio, you have it in your iPod, and you're conditioning yourself to sin. You're allowing sinful thoughts sinful actions to go through your mind in the form of pictures and words that you hear. And then it's a big surprise when you give in to some of the things that you're listening to and hearing. You wonder how that happened. Well, we condition ourselves to it, brethren. When you listen to drinking songs all the time, are you conditioning yourself to go out and drink? Probably so. Maybe you won't act on it. Maybe you will. That's just one example. There are many. They made their heart like an oven, all warmed up and ready to send. Because if you think on something long enough, when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. Their baker sleeps all the night, just lets it do its own thing. In the morning it burns as a flaming fire. So all that sitting in the oven by morning brings forth fire or sin. They're all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calls to me. They've all fallen from the grace of God, both in the church and in the nation. And none really calls on God anymore. Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. I think he means by that that we have allowed the Gentiles to come flooding in and we've mixed ourselves among the people. We're very much a mixed people now and getting worse by the day. So a cake not turned means it's brown and black on bottom and white on top. We're not talking about a, a layer cake like you girls might bake today, but the cakes they made then were more like pancakes. You know, you cook one side until it starts to brown and get ready, and then you flip it over and cook the other side, and then you eat it. But they say we're like, we're like flapjacks that don't get flapped. We burn on one side, turn, turn out to be brown and black on the bottom and white on the top. And God said the Gentile would rise up high above us. Now we're about to elect one. Ephraim has mixed himself among the people, a cake not turned. That's not a good thing. Did you ever burn a pancake on the bottom till it was black and didn't turn it over and it's still gooey on top? Not a good pancake at all. Throw that one out, start over. God says Ephraim needs to be thrown out and start over. 
Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knows it not. We are so quickly sending our wealth to China, to Japan, to Europe, to South America, anywhere in the world. We have gotten so sold on our materiality and greed that we're willing to sell out the future to have what we want right now. And we're doing it month by month with 80, 90 billion dollars a month exporting less than we're importing. I mean, importing more than we're exporting. Our credit card as a nation gets 90 billion dollars a month deeper in the red because we want Walmart products so badly as a nation. We're selling it out. But people don't know it. They just expect it to go on like this forevermore. And when they see cracks in the system, they get all panicky, and then we have a day where the stock market goes way up, and everybody says, oh, they fixed it. I can still go to Walmart, and everything will be fine. But then it was down again about 70 yesterday, and before I came over, it was down 350 today. So it was a short-lived euphoria. I don't know, it may bounce up and down very volatilely for some time to come. Who knows? But now is not the time to be in the stock market, if you hadn't noticed. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knows it not. We just, as a people, don't realize what has happened to us, and that we're about to pay the piper. Those hundreds of billions they're throwing at the problem will not even begin to solve any problem. They'll just make it worse in the long run. The higher you go, the further you fall. Yes, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knows it not. We don't look in the mirror as, an, as a people, as a nation, and see the gray hair. We don't want to see it. We don't want to admit we're aging. That's normal, too. We'd like to be young and beautiful and all the things that America, so-called, is all about. So we don't like to look at ourselves for what really is there. So as a nation, we won't look in the mirror and say, man, I'm getting gray. I'm getting old. What happens when you get old and gray? Well, eventually you fall over. You die. You get buried. And God is saying, we're getting old in this country, and the gray hairs are there, and we're going to die and get buried. Now, does this fit this country or what? And the pride of Israel testifies to his face. And they do not return to the eternal their God, nor seek him for all this. Even if we recognize that our society, our empire, is growing old and getting creaky and arthritic, and won't be able to get up and move around anymore, be consigned to a rocking chair until consigned to the coffin. Don't want to admit that. Our pride will not allow it. It is our pride that keeps us from looking at the way things really are. Why do you and I like to appear as young as we are? Or can be? It's pride. It's pride. And then there comes that inevitable moment when you realize 
there's no way I can try to act or look young anymore. So then we get proud of how old we are. We'll try to deny that we're 70 until we hit 75, and then, well, I'm 77 years young. <laughs> then we're proud of how old we are and how young we feel. Human nature is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, we just are. And our nation is unbelievable. You know, I, up until recently, I was trying to kid myself about my age. I tell people, so-and-so said I look younger than I am. And I was getting razzed about how old I am. I figured out how to solve that problem. Just tell them, yeah, I'm old. I'm old. Well, there's not, if they can't get a reaction out of you, they quit teasing you. Now they'll tease me about something else. But I kind of got past that one. Since I'm my own grandpa. Anyway. In spite of all that's going on, this nation is not even beginning to turn to God. Verse 11, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. You seen how a dove flies? They just kind of flap their wings and they go all different directions. Doves are very hard to shoot in the air with a shotgun because you never know which way they're going to go next. They just kind of woo, 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 all over the place. They fly straight, I might get hit them. The only way I can hit one is to miss it. <laughs> get it by accident. A silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. We want the Arabs to bail us out. We want Europe to bail us out. We even go to further east than that. There's one place that says Ephraim feeds on the east wind. That would be Asia. We look to the east. We're trying to find salvation in the Assyrian, the Arab, and the far east. Because we're sinking. So like a stupid, silly dove, we go to our enemies for help to try to sustain us. And they're just licking their chops, waiting till they can come over and repossess all these McMansions. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation has heard. Now God says when they start going overseas to try to get help, to try to get saved, I'll spread my net and I'll trap them. So you want to know what's going to come the outcome of us going to the central banks in Europe and and uh, having Japan and China buy out our companies and our banks, which is starting to happen, it's just going to pull us down all the more. It's not going to solve anything. Verse 13, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. They've left God. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. Remember, this, the story of spiritual Israel is, is the first and foremost and most important story in here. Our physical nation of Ephraim around us is secondary to spiritual Ephraim and Judah. And God has tried to redeem the church, but most will not listen. 
will not listen. They speak lies against God, saying, we're okay, we're okay, and they're not okay. It's a lie to say you're okay spiritually when you're not. That's a lie before God. And they have not cried to me with their heart when they howled upon their beds. Now, is it possible to lay on your bed and howl in prayer, maybe in tears, maybe in all supplication to howl out to God, not just to talk to him. This says howl like a coyote or a dog howling at the moon. I don't know how much good it does a dog to howl at the moon, but they tend to do it. And if we howl at God because we are uncomfortable, because we feel unblessed, and we're not getting what we want, then we are being selfish, and we're not turning with our heart to obey Him and serve Him and give our life to Him and to each other. And if we will not give our time and our lives to each other, God says, you won't give it to me either. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They really will speak the name of God. They really will say, I love God. But if they won't obey him, he says their heart isn't in it. So you can lay on your bed and howl in prayer all you want, but if you don't turn your heart to him, it means nothing to him. He wants our hearts, not just our lips. How many marriages have their lips in the marriage, but not their hearts? A lot of them. A lot of them. And our marriage to Christ has to have more than lips. It's got to have the heart. They assemble themselves for corn and wine and they rebel against me. You know, what they really want is corn and wine. What they really want is wealth. What they want is God to give them all the things that they desire. So they're not there with their heart to serve God. They're there to get from God what they can. That's how he explains the attitude. We'll howl and cry to get healed. We'll howl and cry to get blessed. We'll howl and cry for a job. But have we really submitted our hearts to God? That's the key to the whole matter. Otherwise, you're just sending up prayers in vain. Why does God say that I will, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart? That means obedience. That means walking his way. It means not seeking what you want and trying to get him to give to you, but where you give your all to him and to his people. That's what he's looking for. You know, a lot of people will shine up to you to get something you have. How many people have won a lottery and suddenly found out they got all kinds of friends? Man, I didn't know I had so many friends. Everybody loves me. Wow, what a revelation. No, they love your money. They don't love you. They'd have been there beforehand if they loved you. They just love what you got and they want some of it. We know that. Very simple Analogy. Very simple truth. Now God can give us anything he so desires, but he is not going to open his heart to us 
and shine his face on us and give us everything that we might or could desire until we give our heart to him. We have to be wholehearted. David was a man who was after God's own heart. Yeah, he ran around and did some things he really shouldn't have done. But boy, he was hot and on fire for God. You look at the Bible and how, many, how much of it was written by any one man. I haven't counted the words, but it may just be that David wrote more songs, more prayers, more psalms to God, wrote more about God than any other author. He meditated on God when he was out minding the sheep. He wrote his thoughts and feelings about God. Letter after letter, psalm after psalm. He was a man who was wholehearted in whatever he did. If it was adultery, man, he went after it. If it was war, he went after it. If it was righteousness, he went after it. And God says, I like your wholeheartedness, but you need to cut this and this out. These, these things you shouldn't do, period, much less wholeheartedly. Well, God wants us to get our headlights on the right goals and purposes and pursue righteousness the same way we would pursue sin. And David is a pretty good example of that. He was wholehearted, but he just needed to get his goals and purposes straight sometimes. But in the end, he repented of the sin. Just, he repented just as wholeheartedly as he sinned and maybe more so. And because of that wholeheartedness, God overlooked the sin, forgave the sin, and said, He is a man after my own heart. Quite a testimony, really. We howl for what we want, but we won't give our heart. but they really want the wealth, the corn and the wine. Verse 15, Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. Though he, the word there under bound is chastened. I've chastened them, I've worked them over, and yet they still imagine mischief against him. And we don't think we imagine mischief against God, but don't we? When we devise things in our heart that are ungodly, that's mischief against his way. That's mischief against his laws, his statutes and judgments, his words. And therefore, it is mischief against him. Anytime we rebel against any of the words of God, we are rebelling not just at the words, but at God himself. They've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. He spoke God's words, and when they rejected him, God just took it personally. It's me they really are rejecting, not you. Now, if you had to ask them, they said, no, it's just that Samuel. He's not like God. He doesn't make the right decisions. He doesn't lead us in proper ways. It's that Samuel. He's the problem. No, God had appointed Samuel to that job. God was leading and guiding Samuel. He even talked to the man. Gave him direct information. 
And they rejected Samuel and thought that that's what they were doing. No, since God was working through Samuel, they were rejecting Samuel. I mean, rejecting God, excuse me. We need to understand that. When we reject his word, we're rejecting him. He says, don't let any of my words drop to the ground. You know, in our sermons here, we could do, as some do, we could get out all these historical books, and we could get all these archaeological books, and we could get all this Bible helps and Bible commentaries, and we could read the commentaries and get up here with a stack of books that high and, and read commentaries to you, written by Protestants who don't understand God at all. But I think what we need to do is what we're doing. We need to get up here and read God's Word to you. Be instant, in season and out of season. Preach the Word. Everything we need, basically, is in this book. Right here. Don't let any of these words drop to the ground. People say, well, why do you preach that? Why do you preach this? Because it's in this, and it's all written to you and me, every bit of it. And we're finding, it doesn't matter where we go, Deuteronomy, Genesis, it applies today to you and me. It's there for us. Mr. Armstrong said a mouthful when he said the Bible was written to the church. And I believed him then, but it was head knowledge. And now that I've gotten into the Bible a lot more deeply, I find he was absolutely right. Everything in here points to you and me and the troubles we're having here at the end time. Now we harp about it a lot because, why? Because it's in here from Genesis to Revelation, the same old story. It's there, no matter where you go. And people are the same whether they lived in Noah's day or today. People have not changed. Only a few are willing to change. And you are among those few who are willing to change. Thank God for that. But here is a people who's willing to change. And even we get defensive. Even we have our pride get up and our ego get in the way. We protect certain tendencies, weaknesses, or sins that we have. And Terry's been talking some about acceptable sins. I think it was Terry, one of them. Those that in ourselves we accept and are willing to live with. Some things they say you need to overcome. Oh, okay, I can cut that one out. But here's one I kind of like. This one's dear to my heart. And uh, I'll overcome it someday. And someday is a very shadowy thing way off in the future. Because we don't really intend to do something about it. There are certain sins that are closer to our hearts. And they may vary from person to person, what they might specifically be. But not too much, because we're all about the same. We're all about the same. Verse 16, they return, but not to the Most High. Raised up more churches, 
return to church, return to congregations, but not to God. They're like a deceitful bow, like a bow that has a twist in it with crooked arrows. And you point it straight, but it flies crooked. We point ourselves maybe in the right direction, but if the bow and the arrow are not straight, you're not going to hit the target. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. Oh, they can go on and on about how they're okay and how they're doing what's right and everything, but they're going to die. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. We're going to go into captivity again. Egypt, not that little land over there in northern Africa, but Egypt is much bigger than that in biblical uh, symbolism. Symbol, uh, Egypt symbolizes the sinful world. And maybe on the church level at this point it symbolizes worldwide when it's went deep into sin. But on a, an international level, Egypt just means sin. And we've gone into the whole world. And we're going to be taken into captivity and sold around the world, not just the land of Egypt. We don't want to think too narrowly on these things. What time is it? I'm almost done. Chapter 8. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the eternal, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Set the trumpet to your mouth. That means make a loud noise. When Ephraim is in this condition, be it the church of the firstborn or the nation that we live in, set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Remember Ezekiel 17 that talks about the two eagles, Herbert Armstrong and Joe Dukach, who came against, well, Herbert Armstrong didn't, but he made a deal with Dukach, and it turned out bad for us, and it came against the church. Israel shall cry to you, or to me, my God, we know you. I know God. Most of the church says, we know God. Is that by their definition or God's definition? Remember their people says, we know you. Didn't Christ use that analogy? We know you. And he said, I know you not. I don't even know you. Who in the world are you? And yet, you, we thought we knew God. There are people who think they know God who have no clue who God is. I'm dealing with some of that on a regular basis now. People who think they know God and they don't have a clue who God truly is. We have a whole nation like that. And really we have a whole church like that. Ninety percent of them are going to deny the words of God. These words we're reading right here today, they will not accept. Israel shall cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. We are going to have armies come after us. They have set up kings, but not by me. 
They have made princes, and I knew it not. I didn't have anything to do with it. They're putting crooks and liars and cheats and thieves and adulterers in the government. And God said, I don't have anything to do with that. They're doing that themselves. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Is there any question that this nation's greatest idol is materiality and serving the self with materiality? And that's the first God that God is cutting off with this economic crash that is upon us. Your golden calf, you could put in there, your idol, O Samaria, has cast you off. That which we idolize, that's which we dreamed about, that's which we thought about. You know when you have money in the stock market, you don't think about God when you wake up in the morning. You think about checking to see if your stock is up or down. I had about 30 years ago, I had some money in the stock market and the one and only time that I did. I became obsessed with that. Am I richer today or am I poorer today? Man, I had to check that thing every day, several times a day maybe, to see if I was getting an eighth up or if I was a quarter down. Made some money on that, got out of it. same time I was being suckered on some silver because the guy in the church that sold me the stock and the silver said, well, you don't need the silver in hand. They keep it in the vault in Denver. It's safe there. And then the president of the silver company cleaned out the vault and went to Mexico one day. <laughs> Lost every bit of paper silver I had. I haven't done that again either. You know, we get into money and investment and trying to get rich, and it's an obsession with Americans. God says, that's a God that I'm going to take away from you. Your idol has cast you off. My anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? You know, once innocence is lost, it's really hard to get it back. Once you know about sin, once you've delved into it, it's hard to be unsin again, an unsinner. You already know the ways of sin. Once you've become a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a fornicator, it's really hard to get your innocence back. How many girls wish they were still a virgin? It's really hard to get it back once it's gone. Innocence lost is almost impossible to regain. And yet God and Paul said that he wants us to be beginners in sin and experts in righteousness, or words to that effect, I'm paraphrasing it. But once you've been an expert and a sinner, as a sinner, it's hard to become an innocent, righteous person again, isn't it? Once that innocence is lost, it doesn't matter what the sin, it's hard to gain back much as you wish that you could, but it's gone. And from Israel was it also, the workmen made it. Therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. 
We've made a golden idol of silver, gold, and dollars just like they did when they made the actual golden calf at the foot of Sinai over here. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. So even what we produce, the strangers are going to come and get. They, a lot of these people don't know what's going to happen. They think if they get their silver and gold instead of cash, that they'll come out on the other side, Whee! Look at me. I'm the rich now because I kept the silver and the gold. No, even the silver and gold won't save you this time because she's going down and she's going all the way down and it isn't coming back. Not until Christ returns after horrible war on this earth and the day of the Lord and 90% have died and been humbled, the ones that are left, then Israel and Ephraim will make a comeback. But the United States, for now, is history. Write it off. It's gone. May still be hanging around a little bit, but that won't be for long. Strangers will swallow up everything. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. They'll take all our wealth. They'll kill all of our weak and old and young. And those that are slaves will have only the work of their hand to give. And they will look upon this nation as worthless. No pleasure in it. There was one place we read recently where it said they wouldn't even, couldn't even sell us as slaves. It'll get so bad. Yeah, as Americans, they don't even make good slaves. They don't know how to work. Kill them all will be the attitude. For they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim has hired lovers. We're going to go our way, aren't we? I did it my way was one of the biggest sellers of music that ever, a song that ever came out by Old Blue Eyes. I did it my way. And God says we'll just be like a wild ass alone out in the wilderness doing it his way. We'll maintain our independence and all they'll see of us is our swishing tail as we go our way. A wild ass in the wilderness. Ephraim has hired lovers. We have made deals, negotiated all kinds of treaties with all kinds of countries. We've adulterated our relationship with God who was supposed to be our protector, our provider, our guide, our lead. And we have looked to others in military alliances, economic alliances, and it'll do us no good. God calls it adultery. Yea, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of the princes. We'll have a little bit of attack of guilt of conscience once we kind of see what's happening. But it'll take a lot more than that to bring true repentance. Because Ephraim has made many altars to sin, altars shall be to him to sin. In other words, we've erected all these false idols and altars, so God says then when we come to him, 
to truly come before his altar, perhaps it'll be an altar of sin that we build. Because that's what we're used to doing. And if there isn't true repentance, any altar we bring to God is of sin. Just like he said, if you don't forgive your brother, I won't forgive you. You've sinned against your brother, and you come to my altar, it's an altar of sin to you. I'll not forgive your sin. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. How much does this nation get out the word of God and the great things of his law and follow them? Almost nothing we do is what God would do or what he tells us to do. That's true of the church as well. God is pleading with the whole church to repent, to change, to grow, to get on fire. And most of the church doesn't even look in the Bible to see what God is trying to tell them. They just go on reading the few scriptures they read, and they don't examine this word. The gray hairs are on us as a church and as a nation, but we won't look in the mirror and see them. If we would, maybe we'd repent from the heart and God would remove the penalties. But we won't do it. God says, I know they won't do it. You know, I, I don't take pleasure in reading these to me and to reading them to you. And we're here to be inspired and excited and love God and love each other and have an inspiring time. And, and yet here I'm still in the middle of Hosea. <laughs> but these are the things we need to hear so that we might make the changes we need to make so that we do it right. There are thousands of people, brethren, who are meeting today in Feast of Tabernacle sites around the world. You know what they're getting? Pablum. They're getting Isaiah 11. Everything's going to be wonderful. They're not hearing the Word of God laid out before them. You know why we're going to have a good feast here? Do you know why? It's because we're going to listen to these words of God and we're going to go to our booths, not our booths, our booths. Maybe we'll take a bottle with us to the booth, I don't know. Maybe we need to. But we're going to take these things seriously, and we're going to cry out to God, aren't we? And we're going to ask him to help us have the right heart and mind and spirit here so that we can love one another and so that he can be pleased with our feast, instead of like he is with most of the feasts being held today, he can't stand the smell of them, brethren. He says, I can't stand the smell of your feasts. I want him to say, ah, that one smells good. Let's give God a good feast. Let's take these words to heart and give Him our hearts while we're here. And then it can be truly inspiring because God will bless us and we'll have everything going the right direction. So, yeah, God's been paddling on us and so have I with His Word, but let's let Him sit us down on His knee and now tell us He loves us too.
because he does. And if our hearts are right and our attitudes are right, he can't help but feel tender and loving towards us.